and welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast, a bi-weekly show where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I am your host, Eric Mike Serino, coming to you today from the dreary Durham, North Carolina. I miss the sun. Um, and remember, outside of this podcast, I'd like to remind everyone that if you're interested in the latest news and research on the Belt and Road Initiative, to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. From China's going out at the turn of the century to the Belt and Road today, a major facet of Chinese overseas investment in infrastructure building has been of that of natural resource extraction, which often involves export from a host country to China, and energy production, which is often, although not always, has a Chinese state-owned enterprise building energy capacity within a Belt and Road or a host country. Today, we're going to focus on the latter, specifically Chinese investment into Southeast Asian energy. And to talk about the subject, we couldn't have a better guest. I'm very delighted to have on the show Courtney Weatherby. Courtney Weatherby is a research analyst with the Stimson Center's Southeast Asia and Energy, Water and Sustainability Programs. Her research focuses on sustainable infrastructure development, economic and security developments in the Indo-Pacific region, and energy issues, particularly the food-water-energy nexus. I have her on today to talk about her February 1st article on the Great China Dialogue website, entitled It's Decision Time for Southeast Asia as Power Demand Soars. Courtney, welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, Courtney, can you set the stage about the general energy needs uh, for Southeast Asia? Yes. As anyone who's been to Southeast Asia and had the chance to travel around will easily see, it's a very dynamic region. It's urbanizing, there's rising living standards, industrialization, globalization are all driving rapid changes in society there. And that's very much a driving factor for electricity demand expansion. Uh, looking at the region as a whole, the International Energy Agency projects that electricity demand will rise about 67% from 2017 to 2040. There is pretty significant variance between countries. So if you look at the most developing countries, Cambodia, Myanmar, Laos, and in the near term, Vietnam as well, um, many of them have double-digit annual demand growth, um, and they're coming from a relatively low starting point. So when you compare that to countries like Malaysia, Thailand, or Singapore, which have slower annual projected growth, but are continuing to grow nonetheless, it all adds up to a very... Um, a very much expanding electricity demand and energy needs for the region. So in terms of installed capacity, that's actually more than a doubling from an installed capacity of 240 gigawatts in 2017 to about 585 gigawatts in 2040. So in, for comparison's sake, we could say that's like adding an entire Japan electricity supply into the region through 2040. Wow. So significant shift going to require a lot of investment. And thus far, how are Chinese players in Southeast Asia uh, energy development? How are they involved? How involved are they? And who are the companies going out and in what sectors? Yeah. So like with energy demand itself, you will see significant variance between countries. But speaking broadly, if you look at a survey that my team did of mainland Southeast Asia, um, China's involved in approximately one quarter of all of the energy projects. And that will go up significantly for some countries. So, for instance, Cambodia, between 65 and 80 percent of all of the energy projects across the board are Chinese invested, built or owned, 
Whereas if you look at Thailand's energy supply, it's a much smaller role. China has, I think, less than 10% of the projects in the country. It has a hand in less, less than percent of the projects in the country. So you will see that sort of variance there. Um, and you'll also see some pretty significant variance in the type of energy that China is investing in. So if you do a survey of not only Belt and Road investments, but going back before the Belt and Road, the vast majority of Chinese energy investments have been in traditional technologies. So hydropower, coal, other fossil fuels. Um, our own survey shows that for mainland Southeast Asia, China's been involved in funding or building almost half of all of the coal projects, a quarter of the hydropower projects, and then notably less than that, about six to seven percent of the solar and wind projects in the region. Um, and when you do sort of a survey of the Chinese energy firms investing in those projects, there's more than 40 of them. And broadly speaking, you'll see a stark split between the projects that state-owned enterprises support and the projects that private firms support. State-owned enterprises from China tend to be involved in large-scale, more traditional hydropower and coal projects, um, but they're really not investing heavily yet in renewable energy projects. If you look at sort of the, the broad scope of Chinese investments in the region, mixing everything together, something like 80% of the investments are from state-owned enterprises, and almost 80% of those investments are in traditional sectors. Uh, whereas when you look at the private firms, which are that smaller percentage of investors abroad, um, you'll see that they're all almost exclusively in renewable energy projects, and the size tends to be smaller as well. Is, is that percentage terms in dollar value or estimated dollar value or in just project uh, or, giga, or like megawatt hours or gigawatt hours? I, I think those estimates are in terms of gigawatt hours or megawatt hours. It's actually, it's not extremely difficult to find the size of existing energy projects, but it is often very difficult, particularly when you're looking at Chinese projects, to get detailed dollar figure amounts. <laughs> yes, that is everyone's issue. I've always said that if China became more transparent in their overseas endeavors, there'd be a whole slew of academics and analysts around the world out of jobs. Uh, <laughs> it'd be better for the world uh, and for the countries in which they invest in and for themselves. But that's a different story. So what are the domestic, meaning the host countries, the countries achieving investment, and the Chinese drivers, so the, or the, maybe the domestic political economy within China drivers that have created the increased production of coal energy? What has been the drivers for this coal investment throughout different countries in Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, the biggest pull factor from countries looking to build out their energy supply for coal is that it's viewed as cheap and reliable. Uh, when you look at sort of the, the decision makers inside ministries of energy and mines in, in most of these countries, many of them are technically trained and traditionally trained looking at hydropower and looking at coal. And so it's a familiar technology for them. And it's something that they know the cost of, you know, when you look at the existing energy supply, not only in Southeast Asia, but in other developing and developed countries around the world, these are the technologies with the longest track record. So it's really easy for them to sort of estimate from a financial perspective the investment that's needed, some of the risks involved. Obviously, the big challenge with this is that it's a parsing of upfront costs, which is, you know, high capital costs affiliated with renewable energy technologies, for instance, versus the lifetime costs of maintenance and the consideration of externalities for these traditional technologies, because historically those have not really been built into the economic consideration. But when there's pressure to meet immediate needs to avoid blackouts, 
that will upset your populace or drive investment out of the country. These tried and true technologies like coal get a lot of support. Another factor in that as well is that the affordability of renewable energy technologies has been a very recent development. The price drop that puts solar or wind investments, for instance, on equal footing with coal or with hydropower in some countries is very new. Solar and wind price drops have been something like 85% for solar and 65% for wind since 2009. And a lot of that just happens after 2015. So sometimes policymakers haven't even heard that these price drops on the global scale are happening. And in other cases, they might say, well, you know, we heard that they signed for this price, but that can't be a competitive project. You know, when we're looking at this, we're seeing these sign prices and we're not seeing a track record yet. These projects are just getting out the gates. Some of those solar projects are just coming online or many of them are sort of signed for starting production in the 2020s. So they look at these and they say, you know, we see the price drops being reported, but we can't tell if they're truly competitive and economically commercial projects. We can't tell if they are truly economically viable commercial projects or if they are subsidized in some way behind the gate. So they still tend to view solar and wind as too expensive. On the other hand, when you consider China's push factors in this particular instance, there's a lot of momentum built into China's going out policy and now into the Belt and Road Initiative to support Chinese industries that are over capacity inside China, but can see projects that are especially with the support of good loans from the Chinese government that are viable enough to invest in abroad. And so there's a lot of interest from coal investors who are now facing troubles inside China because of the crackdown on air pollution, emissions issues, and all of the environmental issues that were getting attention inside China. Many of those companies are now looking to other developing countries where the regulations are not so severe and where there is that immediate energy need and interest in coal. Yeah, and can you talk a, a little bit more about that? Because you know, we had uh, a few episodes ago, we had Nicholas Lowe on, and he did on-the-ground field research in northern Myanmar, and on a very specific project on a localized level, talked about how there's one smaller state-owned enterprise from China. The, the push-out of these kind of smaller firms, because domestically within China, the larger firms tend to have political connections that, even with the shutdown within China, have been able to either remain them to remain open. Do you have anything more to say about just the, the, the push factor of, of, of going out of, of, of these firms and, and the subcritical factor involved in it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's relevant to consider sort of China's role in pushing coal within the context of what other countries in the region are also doing. Great. So one factor that I didn't touch on is that there is just a wide local supply of coal. Indonesia is a major coal exporter. Uh, Vietnam exports coal, um, high quality coal and then imports low quality coal. And then Australia is is also supplying coal to China and to the region at large. So the region's awash in a steady supply of coal. Um, and at the same time, so there are pressures from Indonesia, from Australia for countries to continue utilizing coal. Japan as well is a major exporter of coal plant technology. But Japan tends to focus on the supercritical or ultra supercritical sort of high efficiency you know, it's, it's very questionable if you can really call any of this clean coal. But, you know, compared to subcritical coal power plants, if you have to have coal, ultra supercritical is a far better option, even though it might be a little bit more expensive. So, you know, China's not the only player here. And within that context, 
China is playing sort of the specific role of providing a lot of loans to Chinese companies to bring their technology abroad, which is often subcritical. And in many cases, we've actually heard of rumors, and I can't tell you if they're true or not, but locals that we spoke to believe that this is true, um, where China has been accused of actually dismantling older plants domestically and shipping that old technology, like the physical plants abroad. So there are some rumors we heard in Vietnam that some of the plants China has signed to build there are actually just Chinese plants that can't be operated in China and are now being sent abroad to Vietnam because Vietnam doesn't regulate it as much. And obviously that's a rumor that's popping up because there is concern over the impacts from Chinese projects. And regarding sort of the players in China's coal export mix, I have to admit I'm much more of an expert in hydropower than I am on coal when it really gets into the specific players involved. But with the hydropower sector, one of the issues we've run into is that when you have sort of these big oligarchic state-owned enterprises investing abroad, when they run into problems and get burned, that actually does create some internal pressure mechanisms within the Chinese government to improve oversight. So there are guidelines coming out of the government for SASAC and other overseeing industries that really do pressure these big state-owned enterprises to play by the rules. They might not still be the same standards or rules that we would want to see in the region from an environmental or social perspective, but there are some internal pressures and they have their own internal standards. But many of these smaller companies don't run into the same thing because they can operate under the radar. So sometimes the provincial level SOEs or in some cases, some of the private firms that are getting pushed out of the market inside China and moving abroad may actually run into larger problems for the locals because they don't have the same level of oversight that these big state-owned enterprises do. Huh. Really interesting. So moving from the, the worst end of the exportation of subcritical coal to the more positive end of things in terms of renewable energy, what renewable energy has seen the most growth within the energy mix in Southeast Asia? And where is that located? And what have been the driving factors towards those methods of energy production? So when it comes to winners and losers of renewable energy technology, Historically, biomass and geothermal energy, particularly in Indonesia and the Philippines, where there's a lot of geothermal potential, have been the big winners. Um, but solar is catching up very rapidly. Just within the last few years, we've seen Vietnam come out with solar policies that essentially clarify the regulatory environment and allow for commercial scale solar projects to connect to the grid. And within just a year, Vietnam saw about 17,000 megawatts of MOUs signed for solar plants as a result of clarifying this policy. If that were existing, that would by far be the largest renewable energy investment in the region as a whole. Wow. So solar is catching up because the rapid price drops that have happened just in the last five years have suddenly put it on a competitive footing with other technologies. So, you know, it's a very rapidly changing environment. Wind is also starting to catch up. Um, the, the biggest difference is that you know, when you're looking at the part of the world that Southeast Asia is located in, in many ways, it's just ripe for solar investment because it is a solar belt. If you're looking at solar radiation, it's close to the equator. During the dry part of the monsoon season, the skies are clear, it's sunny, it's relatively predictable. So it's kind of a haven for solar investment when the policy regulations are clarified in a way that allow and support solar. That's great news on the Vietnam front. And so... 
from Xi Jinping on down, there's been an express commitment of having a green BRI. But thus far, much of Chinese investment, as you've stated, has been in coal or hydropower or not renewables like solar and wind. What's holding back Chinese firms from producing more of these renewable sources of energy within Southeast Asia? I think one of the factors which is starting to shift right now is sort of the historic preoccupation of Chinese solar investors with the domestic market. Up until very recently, there was a lot of push for just rapid expansion of solar inside China. And so while there was overproduction of solar panels, and that's been a rapid contribution that China has made globally with helping roll out solar is simply by overproducing solar panels and a lot of the other physical equipment for solar projects, China has made it affordable for other countries to start investing in solar. But at the same time, the interest in the actual investment and development of those projects was was very much occupied domestically. And I think there just wasn't interest or bandwidth to necessarily take that abroad because there's so much opportunity inside China. Now that that market has shifted, you know, there was a change last year with sort of the feed-in tariffs. There's a sense that a lot of the projects that have been built more on wind than on solar, but I think in, in both instances, you've seen curtailment of projects where they were connected to the grid, um, but there wasn't a buyer for them, or in some cases, the projects were built, but then they weren't able to connect into the grid. And so for various reasons inside China, that solar market has gone through a little bit of a, a heli challenge in the last couple of years. So we're starting to see a little bit more interest in going abroad. but. Broadly speaking, when you're looking at the type of projects that, for instance, the Chinese Development Bank or the Exim Bank support, they tend to support larger projects. And for a lot of the recipient countries of these investments, solar, wind, and other renewable technologies are new. So they're not going to off the bat just go for a large thousand megawatt solar park, even if they had the land available for that immediately. Uh, most of these countries want to see pilot projects. They want to get used to the technology. They want to understand how to integrate renewable variable technology and energy production into an existing grid, often a grid that is already facing challenges. And so when they're asking for investment, they're not asking for big support from China for a diplomatic aid project in a renewable sector. That's also starting to change. I think it was very interesting if you look at the most recent meeting between Hun Sen from Cambodia, for instance, when he went to China and met with Xi and, and other Chinese officials, the big request was for solar support. It wasn't for hydropower support, which has historically been the focus of Cambodia's energy plan. So again, I think these are changing factors, but historically there just hasn't been the pull factor for Chinese companies to want to go abroad and do solar investment because it was not something that they had the connections pulling on them for for these investments. And it also, in many cases, wasn't a promising investment environment. Solar in a lot of these countries is still not something that there's policy support or regulation for. And so when you're looking as an investor, what can I make a profit off of? That's been one of the main reasons that not only China, but other countries have not robustly invested in renewable energy technology in Southeast Asia. The investment environment just wasn't quite right up until the last couple of years. You know, you said that Vietnam changed and clarified their policies in terms of renewable energy. Are there any other countries within Southeast Asia that have made changes to their renewable energy uh, policies or programs and have seen increases in investment either domestically or from China or even Japan or South Korea or other major players in the region? Yeah, Thailand is actually probably the best example of a country that has robustly over many years rolled out support for 
renewable energy technology. So back in the early 2000s, Thailand was already experimenting with limited adder tariffs and feed-in tariffs for solar and later for wind. Um, and Thailand has made robust progress because as the price of the technologies dropped, the experiments that it had done in the early years really paid off in bringing in a lot of investment. So Thailand is actually already more than halfway to its goal of installing 6,000 megawatts of solar by 2036. So there's actually this rapid debate going on inside Thailand right now as they revise their national energy plan to figure out what they should up their targets to because they already have made so much progress. Thai solar companies are well developed both on their own as well as in partnership with sort of foreign investors who can provide some of the technical expertise. Um, and Thailand is actually now starting to go out and invest in other countries in the region because for this moment right now, Thailand's domestic solar market is somewhat saturated. So there's a lot of, you know, lessons to be learned from Thailand, both on the positive side and the negative side of how to move forward with this. But it's, it's a good case study for the region. I think when you're looking at non-solar investment, the Philippines and Indonesia have both had sort of fits and starts of investment into geothermal. And I think in both cases, they've clarified the policies, but are having difficulty with implementing them due to existing interests and sort of technical difficulties on the ground. So you are seeing across the board sort of this reconsideration of solar energy and other renewable energy technologies, particularly in the face of the commitments that countries in the region are making climate change and the very visible impact that climate change is having. There is a lot of internal pressure from environmental groups and others to push for these renewable energy technologies. But it's a question of making the regulatory changes that will bring investment in these technologies in at a, a good rate that will give the experience and allow them to integrate these new energy projects into the grid effectively, but without sort of overheating the market in a way that will really burn utilities down the road. So it's, it's a sort of, for many countries, sort of a touch and go where they, they want to open up, but they're afraid of the impact. So they're trying to find the right balance. Hmm. Interesting. But finally, my last question here. So it's May and you're invited to the Belt and Road Forum. You have the ears of the entire state council and many ASEAN leaders. What message would you have for them? And, and get as specific as you'd like, either uh, on towards specific industries or players within China or within different countries uh, throughout Southeast Asia. I would really suggest that there are harder targets and really more clear, not only rhetorical support, but actual physical on the ground support for projects in the solar sector under the Belt and Road. You know, one of the big critiques of the Belt and Road is that despite a lot of increasingly high level rhetoric about the impacts that it wants to have on sustainable development and be a green BRI, a lot of the projects that are approved and actually moving forward are still definitely not green projects, particularly because of the investment in coal. So there really does need to be a stronger commitment to investing in renewables, perhaps at the price of some of these coal projects. And I think that's politically very difficult because there is a lot of momentum in China's coal sector to go abroad and that momentum is not yet there for renewables. Um, but it is really important if China wants to be seen down the road as a country that was truly a leader on green energy um, and truly a leader on sustainable development, that it's not talking about this as, as an area where it's making a big change and then continuing to sort of fund the old dirty technologies 
that have brought so many challenges inside China. And I think this is a challenge and the, the, the way to move forward with this will have to be very delicately balanced because there is still this sense shared by many policymakers inside China. And I think also in other developing countries, they can do what China did and develop first and address these environmental problems later. But around the world, I think not only considering climate change, but considering the way that local populaces are reacting to these dirty projects, these impactful projects on you know their local communities, on their environment, it's not a sustainable way for China to develop these projects either, because they're going to continue running problems down the road. Those are wonderful recommendations. I, I wish you would be able to be there to tell um, everyone that at the Belt and Road Forum, but now hopefully they'll just be listening to this podcast. Courtney, thank you so much for your time uh, and stick around for recommendations. You've been listening to a conversation with Courtney Weatherby. She's a research analyst at the Stimson Center, Southeast Asia and Energy, Water and Sustainability Programs. Her research focuses on sustainable infrastructure development, economic and security developments in the Indo-Pacific region and energy issues, particularly the food, water, energy nexus. Uh, we talked about her article, which was featured on China Dialogue's website, from February 1st, that was entitled, It's Decision Time for Southeast Asia as Power Demand Soars. I'll certainly put that in the show notes. So, Courtney, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? I actually do have a recommendation for everybody. Um, and it is a book that has just come out this week. And it's by my colleague and friend, Brian Eiler. It's called The Last Days of the Mighty Mekong. Um, it's a book aimed at a general audience, but it essentially is a very evocative and narrative exploration of China's developments along the Mekong River and the impacts that China's infrastructure in Yunnan and downstream in mainland Southeast Asia have on local communities and on the environment. It's an easy read despite being <laughs> a book, and I would highly recommend that people check it out if they have any interest in um, sort of the real impacts that China's global developments are having on individual people and on Southeast Asia. Wonderful. That'll certainly be on my list of my long list of books that I'll certainly get to in the future. Uh, thanks for that recommendation. Uh, and for my recommendation, I'm going to do another China Dialogue piece. Anything from China Dialogue that's published on it is great. It's a really wonderful website. But uh, from Lily Pike from February 18th, it's called China's World Bank is making it easier to complain. And it's about the AIIB's complaint mechanism and how right now there basically isn't one, but it will be implemented in March and how that's going to test to see if the AIIB can conduct itself to the uh, international best practices uh, that other multilateral development banks try to uphold as well. So a very interesting article itself. Courtney, thank you so much for, for coming on to the Belt and Road Podcast. I was very happy to be here. You've been listening to the Belt and Road Podcast, a biweekly show dedicated to covering the latest news, research, and analysis of China's growing presence in the developing world. If you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. This show is produced by me, Eric Mike Serino, and edited by Jason McRonald. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.